One of the challenges of growing up in our culture being withdrawn in a Western culture away from the kind of Jewish roots that our faith comes from is sometimes there are things that are really important to the Christian faith and to the foundation it was built upon that we often don't really know very much about. Tonight, I hope to help us learn a little bit more about the Sabbath and why it was so important to God's people that they observe a Sabbath. I remember sitting in my biblical introduction class to biblical counseling um, with uh, Dr. Jeremy P. Hare at Southern and um, being struck by something that was so simple, but it just revolutionized the way that I thought about growing in my faith, conquering sin, um, progressing in greater sanctification. Um, And that was this bold statement that we are body and soul joined together. He made this statement, and I didn't know why it was so important until we started just walking through the implications for that. What he tried to lay out in front of us was that your body influences your soul just like your soul influences your body. And often we go in one direction. We think about the soul or our heart, our mind, as influencing our body and helping us to move forward and grow as Christians. And what he tried to lay out before us was that the body does the same thing to the soul. Um, kind of simple example is a study that was done at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville, and Texas A&M. And it was a study where they looked at over 50 years of research on what is called facial feedback. The idea that if you smile, it'll make you feel happier. If you frown, it'll make you feel sad. If you scowl, it will make you angry. And they looked at over 50 years and did a metadata research on it and came to the conclusion that while it's not like smiling is just going to instantly make you this super joyful person, it does affect you physiologically. It releases certain um, endorphins and causes you to start to feel happy for your stress levels to drop. Another example is, and I'm sure you guys can relate to this, what about when you get too little sleep? You, You become more irritable. Your mind may get kind of fuzzy. You can't really think as clearly. That paper you're trying to read for class, you wind up reading like the same paragraph 27 times and you still don't understand it. And maybe it keeps going on and you keep getting a lack of sleep and you show up for a final exam and you just don't know the material. You've stayed up late studying, but it seems like it's done no good. And in that moment, you may be extremely tempted to cheat. Your body has put your soul in a precarious situation. The way that you have handled your body has set your soul up to be tempted in ways it might not normally be. And so, what we're going to talk tonight about fits into this category of something that we do physically that's meant to affect our soul. We are body and soul joined together And this is going to have profound implications for how we grow as Christians, how we think about God's commandments, his law, how we think about the fruits of the Spirit and the things that we're told to walk in as new believers in the New Testament. And so, as we move forward, I want to read a quote by a book that I was reading this past week. Us interns had to read it. Um, Kevin and Aaron assigned it to us. It's a book called You Are What You Love by James K.A. Smith. It speaks to this very issue. When he's talking about how do we develop virtues, how do we develop 
vices, the things that shape us, our character, our heart, the things that spill forth and come out of us, like Jesus talked about. He says that first we learn virtues or vices through imitation. Like a young boy who learns to shave by mimicking what he sees his father doing. And so we learn to put on the virtues by imitating those who model Christ-like life. This is part of the formative power of our teachers who model the Christian life for us. Second, acquiring virtue takes practice. Such moral, kingdom-reflecting dispositions are inscribed into your character through rhythms and routines and rituals enacted over and over again that implant in you and become a character trait. Think about how we have a liturgical format to our Bible studies on Wednesday night. It's like we have moral muscles that are trained in the same way our biological muscles are trained. When we are practicing a golf swing or piano scales, it's a crucial for us to recognize that our ultimate loves, longing, desires, and cravings are learned. And because love is a habit, our hearts are calibrated through imitating exemplars and being immersed in practices that over time index our hearts to a certain end. We learn to love, then, not primarily by acquiring information about what we should love, but rather through practices that form the habits of how we love. These practices are pedagogies or teachers of desire, not because they are like lectures that inform us, but because they are rituals that form and direct our affections. These aren't just things we do. They do something to us. Well, our Creator God knew that we function this way when He created us. And if it is the case, just hypothetically, if it is the case that having rituals and things like that in our life helps us to pursue Him more faithfully, then I could bet that pretty early on in the Bible we're probably going to have some rituals and practices being given to God's people to help them pursue Him. So if you would, start reading with me in Genesis chapter 2. So the heavens and the earth and everything in them were completed. On the seventh day, God had completed his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy. For on it, he rested from all his work of creation. What we read here is that on the seventh day, God declared that day holy. A day that is set apart. It was supposed to be a day that stood out from the others in a distinct fashion. And how was it particularly different? God rested. That is, he ceased to work. He was satisfied with his act of creation and stopped creating. He stood back, propped up his celestial lazy boy, and gazed at the creation he had just finished. And it was good. Good. I could imagine the throne room of heaven was silent as the angel stood, gawking at what he had just done with the power of his voice. Seeing their creator, or seeing the creator God cease his creation and declaring, This is good. I can rest. But the Sabbath wasn't for our God, 
It was for the hearts of the Israelites who had just left Egypt, primarily. Here's the big takeaway from tonight. The Sabbath communicates to God's people who they are and who He is. Moses wrote Genesis to pass on to the people of Israel so that they would know their God and be His people. Then isn't it interesting, think about this, that the first story that Moses writes is about an almighty creator God creating the heaven and earth, creating them in His image, and then resting. Many Jewish scholars point to the poetic nature of Genesis 1 and 2. And what they'll tell you is that if you look at different patterns that are repeated, the Sabbath is actually the central point of Genesis 1 and 2. Why is that? Isn't it remarkable that the first thing we see is God clearly instituting for his people a day of rest? We know for a fact that Moses didn't wait very long after the people were out of Egypt to teach this to them. It was either that the Sabbath was so common knowledge that they already knew it, or it was that he started teaching them the Sabbath from the moment they walked out of Egypt. And how do we know this? Well, because in Exodus 16, they've just crossed the, um, the Nile or the Red Sea. They're out in the wilderness. They're running out of food. And God sends manna. And what was the order to do with manna? On six days, you pick up the manna, but the seventh day, you don't. You pick up extra on the sixth day, and on that seventh day, you rest. So even at the very beginning, before they had ran out of food, it's already being taught to them. Seven days, you can work for six, but on the seventh, you rest. And this pattern repeats itself over and over and over for the rest of your life and your children's life and your grandchildren's life. It is to be a day that is constantly remembered that you rest on this day. These are the people who Moses would have told the Genesis story to. These are the people who had heard of the Sabbath first. Not only that, but this message was so important to the Israelites that God made them rest for a full day. I mean, think about it. A full day dedicated to getting the point of this day. Every week. What was the main point of this? In Egypt, Israelites were slaves. In Egypt, the Israelites were only worth as much service as they could provide for Pharaoh. Whether that was brick making or road laying, Whatever else, their value was directly attached to their contributions to, their, to Pharaoh's agenda. Their production was what they were worth. If they sat down on the new job site, they could expect a whip to come across their back and encourage them to keep working. If they failed to show up to the job, they could kiss their pay and their family's source of food goodbye. If they thought about pursuing freedom, or if Pharaoh even perceived that they might be able to accomplish freedom, he would throw all of their male infants into the Nile. This was their master for as long as they had lived. It was as long as their parents could have lived and remembered. And then God shows up and sets them free. He displays his supernatural power and that he is the ultimate ruler and not Pharaoh and leads them through the Red Sea. But these people were not going to instantly be better. For 400 years, the practices and rituals imposed on the people of Israel had said to them over and over, you are worth the number of bricks you can make me. 
And so God, to show them that he was not just the next Pharaoh in their life, instituted one day a week where he said, you are my people because I love you and made you in my image. And on this day, we are going to sit down and rest and see that this is good. I made you to rule this creation. I made you to represent me. I made you to know that I am your provider. I am your companion in this life, and I will not abandon you when you fail me. Instead, I will keep my promises of setting you free regardless of your mistakes. And every week, God called them to submit themselves to this day, to cease their resting and know that He is their God and they are His people, not because of what they earned, not because of what they could contribute to Him. Their production was not of consequence to God. Their standing before others and what others thought of them was not of consequence to God. They were His people because He chose them and He loved them and He set His affections on them. And so he made them stop one day every week. On that day, they ate the double portion of manna they had collected the day before. On that day, they did not work, but God provided for them. On that day, God reinforced through the habit of the Sabbath, I am your God, but you are my chosen and loved image bearers. You are free with me. You are no longer slaves. I remember watching and reading the insanity of God. And when Nick Ripkin has finally gotten to Somalia and he's seen how hard and callous the hearts of the people in Somalia are, the war-torn country, how their rations that they bring in get stolen by warlords and criminals. He's in his hotel room one night weeping and like, I can't do this anymore. And so about right before 5 o'clock every night, the BBC would put out a radio devotional so he turned it on. The voice that came on was a lady from England who is a member of parliament and who is Jewish. And she said, I'm going to talk about the Sabbath. And he said, God, you really screwed up this one. Like you had a chance to correct me and help me realize I should stay here. And you dropped the ball on that one. But as he started listening to her, he heard her say, when Moses came down that mountain with those two stone tablets cradled in his arm and read, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy, there would have been a shout, a cheer, a cry of victory because that would have been the first time in human history that God put it in writing, my people shall be free because only a free people can take a Sabbath. And it rocked him. And he started weeping because what he knew is that he had the privilege to leave Somalia and go home because he was free. He had the privilege of knowing that he was going to spend an eternity with his God because his God had set him free. The people in Somalia did not have that. The people were slaves to the corrupt system, to the warlords, to the people who were just trying to survive. And it broke him. And he spent a tremendous amount of time there after that. It was a day every week about more than stopping work, about more than physically resting. It was a habit that God was building into his people's life 
that would turn their affections to him, that would show them who he really was. He chooses his people. He loves his people. He sets his people free. Only free people can choose the Sabbath. And for Nick and for us, it screams to us, you do not have to labor without ceasing because God has set you free. But look around and we will see plenty of people who are enslaved to their work, to the expectations of others, to the constant drive in our culture to produce. We can look around and see that there are so many people who are still enslaved and living in bondage. Their masters do not tell them, you have a day off from me where I don't demand something of you. But we do. We offer a message of rest. We serve a God who says, like he does in Ezekiel 34, you are my flock, the human flock of my pasture, and I am your God. This is the declaration of the Lord God. This is the message of the Sabbath that God gave his people first. God is a gracious God, and they are his free, chosen, and loved people. Not because of what they can offer him. They are to submit to him and love him and know that their place is in his heart, not because they are proving their worth to him, but because he makes his promises out of mercy and kindness and love and does not fail to keep them. And this message was crucial to helping the people of Israel as they received the law later. Think about the law and the sacrifices, the offerings and the festivals and all of these things. God's expectations for his people were high. He called them to represent him. He said, be holy as I am holy. The standard he called them to was incredibly above what they were able to achieve. And yet, even when they were being held to this standard, they were to read it through the lens of what God had communicated to them first. That being, I do not love you because you keep my law. I do not love you because you produce for me. I love you because I have chosen you. I have made you in my image. I have set my heart on you and made you my people. And so when the law started feeling like a burden to them, sure enough, the Sabbath day would roll around. Sure enough, that day would come where they thought back and remembered God setting them free from Egypt. Sure enough, they would remember Pharaoh and the legacy and the imprint he had left both emotionally, mentally, and physically on the generations of the Israelites. And then they would look at their God and how his first command was a day of rest coming at the end of creation. To rest and know, I am your God, you are my people. This lesson was so important for the people of Israel to get, and I believe it's something that we need to hear in American church. Our culture screams, produce, produce, produce. Be the best. Prove your worth. Outdo everyone around you. And our culture will take seven days of our week and not give us any time to rest and remember our God if we give it to them. So what about you? Just as a thought exercise, as a mental experiment, if I were to ask you this Friday from evening 
until Saturday evening to devote a whole day to resting, not doing homework, not doing your actual work, to resting and knowing that your God loves you because he's chosen you. He has brought you his son. He has saved you and that his love is fixed on you and immovable because of that. That your sins are not remembered anymore by him. That he cherishes you. If I told you to take that day, what would your response be? Think about it for a moment. Think about all the things you have planned. Think about the homework assignments you have imposing on you. The papers that are coming up. The tests that are coming up. Think about what people would say about you taking a day off. Think about all of these things and see what your heart would respond to it. Would your first response be to try to theologize it away? Would it be, yeah, the Sabbath became the Lord's day on Sunday? Would it be, um, Colossians 2 says that the Sabbath was a shadow of things to come, pointing to Christ. True, these things are true. And what your views and convictions are about the Sabbath and whether or not it carries over, I'm not concerned with that at this point. What I am concerned is whether or not your heart is willing to take a, a moment to rest in what God has done for you. Or if we have been so saturated and inundated by this drive to produce that we fail to realize the love of God for us despite us. That is separate from us. That is not connected to our work. What does your heart respond if I were to ask you this? Because if it's just to try to theologize it away, if it's try to use your theology and your learning and your education and your reason to not have to be obedient, to not have to take seriously what the Sabbath was meant to teach us, I want to ask you to stop. See that hardness in your heart. Pray, God, what do you have me to be taught through this? Would you think, but I have too much work to do. Maybe you become so consumed by things that God has not called you to, such as recreation, entertainment, or extracurricular activities that you're just voluntarily filling your life with, that you may need to cut off the excess fat to have a time to sit and realize who God is to you. Do you find yourself anxious on Sunday morning about the last few assignments that you know are due that Sunday night? Have you procrastinated and put them off and you lump them in on Sunday so that the day, instead of being a day where you come in the God's house that morning and hear his word proclaimed over you and then are able to let it sink in throughout the day, you are filled with a desire to run out of here so you can go start working on those assignments. Then maybe you should confess all slothfulness. Maybe you should seek the Spirit's forgiveness and His empowerment to help you work diligently, as the Bible says, for six days and have a day where you truly devote yourself to God, to remembering His love for you so that you can go into the habits and the practices and the rituals that the world is going to put on you the next six days to tell you that you are worth what you produce. And you can look back and say, I know it's not true. This truth has settled into my heart on this day and it will settle again a coming. Maybe it's not that. It's the morning worship and inconvenience to you. I mean, do you rush off to do things that you really care more about? It's not so much that like you feel this anxiety or procrastination. Maybe you're an incredibly diligent worker. 
but you really just kind of desire other things more. You sit in the morning worship service, but you're not thinking about God's truth. You're thinking about that assignment that you really love or that project that you're passionate about or that job that you really care for. And maybe those things are consuming you and driving you to them. Maybe you wouldn't describe it this way because of the opportunities that your just incessant work affords you. But maybe you're choosing a life that is habitually telling you that you are a slave. And if you stop that work, people would think less of you. Opportunities would pass you by. And so you have to keep pushing. You have to keep driving yourself. Because otherwise you're going to lose something. And maybe what you would lose then is far less valuable than what you are losing. Maybe you're telling me, Maybe me telling you the Sabbath would cause you to feel your heart, to feel burden, and your reply would be, isn't the Sabbath just legalism or the law? Aren't we free from the law? Aren't we under a covenant of grace? Doesn't God just accept us? There's, there's not this strict like finding my value and my worth and what the law tells me. And so isn't this just legalism? And in the hands of a lot of people, yes, it is. But that's the thing about the law is it can be used on the one hand by the Pharisees for legalism and it can be used on the other hand by Jesus his whole life and lead to abundance. The problem was not the law itself. It was the heart that was using it. It was the heart that sought to just use it for a purpose, a means, an end, to just kind of deposit some stuff over here into God's account so that he'll look favorably upon me. And their heart wasn't in it to actually know their God. Their heart wasn't in it to rest in Him. Jesus was the epitome of human freedom. I mean, just think about it. He lived in the fullness of the Spirit. He drove back the kingdom of Satan. He could command people with blind eyes to speak. I'm not free to do that. I mean, blind eyes to see. Jesus was free. He did not keep the law begrudgingly, but delighted in keeping it. It was a joy to him. If you want to see this, I was in a class, preaching class with Brother Al this past week, and he said, if you took the Bible and made it a person, it's Jesus. If you took Jesus and made it a, a book, it's the Bible. So we can look into God's Word and see the very heart of our Lord. And let me tell you what Psalm 119 says. How happy are those whose way is blameless, who walk according to the Lord's instruction. Happy are those who keep his decrees and seek him with all their heart. They do nothing wrong. They walk in his ways. You have commanded that your precepts are diligently kept. If only my ways were committed to keeping your statutes, then I would not be ashamed when I think about all your commands. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous judgments, and I will keep your statutes. Never abandon me. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping your word. I have sought you with all my heart, and don't let me wander from your commands. I have trusted your word in my heart, treasured your word in my heart, so that I might not sin against you. Lord, may you be blessed. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I proclaim all the judgments from your mouth. I rejoice in the way revealed by your decrees as much as in all riches. 
I will meditate on your precepts and think about your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Our heart of our Savior loved what was written in God's word. He delighted in it. He quoted it to fight Satan when he was tempting him. Look at his apostles. The books that they have written for us are saturated with quotes from Scripture because they showed them the heart of their God. So, I know this is all too common that when I hear the expectations God has for me, His call to be holy, to live in purity and faith and love and self-sacrifice, to take up His cross in all areas of my life from the greatest gestures that I may do to what I may eat and drink, sometimes my heart feels burdened. Like another thing added to my checklist. And what the Sabbath said to the Israelite people when they felt that way and what it says to me is the same thing. Remember your God. He is gracious and kind and His steadfast love does not fail. He keeps his promises and he does not value you because of what you are capable of accomplishing. He's chosen you and set his heart on you. That's what your value comes from. But unfortunately, the Sabbath got corrupted and became this legalistic practice between God, or between when God gave it and when Jesus came. I mean, the rules became strenuous. You couldn't walk more than a thousand cubits. You couldn't drink water outside your camp. You couldn't draw water in into any vessel. You couldn't wear perfume. And you couldn't open any sealed containers. So no, showing off your muscles to open that jar first try. Like, nothing. And so with this legalism creeping in and with the religious rulers using the Sabbath as an oppressive tradition, how did Jesus respond? Let's look at Matthew 11. Verse 28. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Some of you may have this verse memorized. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, going through verse 30. Come to me. All you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me, because I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. And you may ask Dylan, how in the world does this have anything to do with the Sabbath? Well, if you'll look at the very next words and then the heading for the next passage right below it, you'll see that this immediately goes into a conversation about the Sabbath. Jesus is using language here that is packed with references to slavery and to burdens. And people surely would have started thinking about the one time that the people of history began, the people of Israel began becoming a nation and relieving slavery where all their burdens weighed on them. 
So this passage, it says, at that time. So this is like Jesus is saying it and then moving into the very next thing he is doing. And then it's followed by Jesus going through a grain field, speaking about the Sabbath. It's like Jesus is walking down the road, tells his disciples that his yoke is not burdensome, and then tells them that he gives them rest from their burdens, kind of implicating the um, Pharisees who are traveling with them. And then he looked over to the side of the road and saw a grain field and decides they're going to take a walk through it, and they're kind of hungry. I'm sure at this point he would remember his dinner with the tax collectors and the sinners a couple chapters before this, when he told the disgruntled Pharisees to go and learn what is meant by he desires mercy and not sacrifice. And walking out into this field, he's setting a trap to prove his point that he is gentle and lowly in heart compared to the other religious rulers that are with him. He walks into the field. His disciples start picking grain to eat. Something he knew that would cause the Pharisees to lose their mind and claim that he's breaking the Sabbath. And he turns to them and says, I am sure with so much sorrow at how the Sabbath is being distorted. If you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. See, the story of Exodus is not just a story that had a one-time relevance for a certain people. In this field, we see the story of the Exodus repeated over. In this field, we see the Son of God, God Himself, leading His people into freedom. Fighting and combating a repressive interpretation of the law that was enslaving people. Walking into the field and giving life to His disciples testifying to them that they were not his because of what they did and proved to him, but they were his because he loved them and set his heart on them and chose them. Here in that field, we see the majority of humans standing between the voice of God who calls for them to come and rest in his work on their behalf and the voice of others and Satan and his minions who scream for us to find our value in regulations and rules and practices and what others think. In that field, you can see your own heart. Standing there listening to the Son of God who is telling you to come to Him, that His burden is not heavy, that His yoke is not burdensome to you, that He will give you rest, that he is not an oppressive ruling tyrant who will force you and compel you into serving him, who makes demands on your life and whips you if you don't comply. And you will hear the voice of the the serpent, the voice of Satan, speaking through people who tell you it's easier to conform to those who have strong opinions, who assert themselves, It's easier to listen to the voices of those who cast doubt on the Son of God. It's easier to listen to those who don't have your best interests at heart, but are more willing to compel you to make demands on your life, to bid you to do their will, 
rather than the not forceful and the not coercive Savior who's standing there. But in that field, you can hear the voice of a friend. You can hear the voice also of someone who truly loves you. You can hear the voice of rest. The voice of a companion whose hands, side, and feet bear the scars of the slaver's whip that used to strike you. The voice of Jesus Christ who calls out, Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me, because I am lowly and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You will hear a voice who says, Who among you, if he had a sheep that fell into the pit on the Sabbath, wouldn't take hold of it and lift it out? A person is worth far more than a sheep. So it is lawful to do what is good on the Sabbath. You'll hear the voice of God speaking through His Son who says, I am the true vine and my Father is the gardener. Every branch in me that does not produce fruit, He removes. He prunes. But you are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me and I in you. Just as the branch is unable to produce fruit by itself, unless it remains on the vine, neither can you unless you remain in me. The message over and over, come to me. I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit. Because you can do nothing without me. If anyone does not remain in me, he is cast aside. They gather them and throw them into the fire and they're burned. But if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want and it will be done. And my Father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, I have loved you. Remain in my love. I told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. This is my command. Love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this than to lay down his life for his friends. And I have called you friends. Because I have made known to you everything I have heard from the Father. You did not choose me. I chose you. I appointed you to go and produce fruit. And with that fruit would remain. So that whatever you ask may be given to you. And this is what I command you. Love one another. If the world hates you. If the world tells you that your value is in something else, that your value is in question, that you're not loved unless you do X, Y, and Z. If the world hates you, remember the word I have spoken to you. A servant is not greater than his master, and if they persecuted me, they will persecute you too. If they kept my word, they would also keep yours. But they do all these things to you on my account because they don't know the one who sent me. We have a friend who doesn't look at our life and say, I'm going to wipe away everything from you. You're going to go through this life with no struggles. A-OK. Spickety clean. He looks at us and says, you are walking through this world that says your value is determined by what you can produce. But your value is determined by who made you.
Your value is determined by who has set their love on you, who has called you to himself. He's the rest. Jesus is our Sabbath. The Sabbath was given to point us to him, to set our eyes on the Savior who would wipe away all of our tears eventually, to set our eyes on the Savior who would take the shackles and the chains of slavery and break them free, to set our eyes on the Savior who gives us hope and peace and rest. The Sabbath was instituted. It was repeated every week for an entire day to prepare the Israelite people to see when the Sabbath of God had truly come in Jesus Christ. That's what the Sabbath points us to, is our hope of being found in Him. The one who declares that you do not come to God because of what you have done, but you come to God because of my works, because I bear the burden, because I am your provider. Father, I pray that you would set our hearts and affections on you. That, Father, you would remind us when your word seems burdensome or when your commands seem to just weigh us down, that, Father, you are a God who gives rest to his people. You are a God who provides for us and calls us to himself, not because of the works that we have done, but because of the Son who saves us from our sins. The Son who dies in our place, who has risen to life, and now offers that same life to all who will believe in him. So, Father, I pray if there are people in this room who have not come and put their faith in Christ, if there are people in this room who are striving to prove their worth based on their own works and what they can produce, Father, I pray that your Spirit would speak to the depths of their soul and would tell them you were loved and cherished by God, not because of what you have done. And that if you run to these other voices, you are choosing the voices of slavers who will bind you and you will never satisfy But come to me, all who are burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Father, let that sink into the depths of our souls. That, Father, our hearts may delight in the joy that it is to be known by you and loved by you. I pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Sabbath. Amen. So, just things to pray about. As we pray tonight, um, one, pray about, pray that God would show you the things that are built into your life, the habits, the rituals, the practices, the things that you repetitively do that are affecting your soul and teaching you that your worth is not found in God and in his view of you. That God would reveal those things to you. And then pray that God might show you how you could practice, how you could do something. It doesn't have to be a literal Sabbath. I don't know what it is for you. Pray and seek God. Seek counsel. Let your, your own convictions be fully assured in how you could implement some kind of practice that is affirming to your soul what is contrary to what's being taught to us almost everywhere else, that your value is not in what you own and what you do, that you are worth so much because of the God who made you and loves you. And if you come to him and put your faith in him and trust him, he saves you.